Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. Our church's vision is to have a passion for God and compassion for people. We hope that the teachings in this podcast will encourage you as you seek to follow Christ and grow in your faith. Now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, Ritman Grace Brother Church. How are we this morning? I seem to have misplaced my clicker. Here we go. Well, happy 4th of July weekend to everyone, and I hope you are having a good weekend. My name's Clark, and I'm the pastor here. If we have not had the chance to meet yet, love to meet you, and also would love just to catch up with you a little bit after service, so feel free to stick around and uh, love to connect with you a little bit. Well, last week we began a brand new sermon series on the life of Abraham. So we're looking at his life, and the question is, why Abraham? Why are we looking at this guy? In the Bible, why do we think we uh, want to think about this character in the Bible for the today and the ensuing weeks to come? The reason is is simply this: that Abraham is one of the most important characters in all of the Bible, and I would even go a step further and say in all of history. Just to give you a sense, in the New Testament of our Bibles, uh, many Old Testament characters are mentioned. Uh, Moses is probably mentioned the most. Abraham is mentioned the second most frequent, 72 times in the New Testament. And the writer of Hebrews holds up Abraham as a hero and a model of the faith. Uh, What faith in God looks like. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that those of us who trust in Jesus are children, sons, and daughters of, you guessed it, Abraham. In fact, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So if we're going to understand God, if we're going to understand Christian faith, if we're going to understand the Bible, then we need to get our heads wrapped around this familiar uh, character, Abraham. And we find the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, the first book of our Bibles. And I know the Bible can be a very large, very intimidating book, especially the Old Testament, right? Um, The Old Testament is where that place we kind of get overwhelmed sometimes by just the vastness of all the books that are there. In the book of Genesis, right, there's 50 chapters, so that can feel a little bit overwhelming to some people. Uh, But actually understanding the structure, I know for me, uh, understanding the structure of the book of Genesis is very, very helpful, and it makes it feel a little bit less overwhelming. So let me just take a second to introduce you to the way the book of Genesis is structured and maybe that'll help you too. Uh, chapters 1 through 11, we might call that the primeval history. Uh, this is, of course, the story of the creation of the world, uh, the fall into sin, and the flood, the Tower of Babel, and all those things that we find in the primeval history of the world. You get to chapters 12 through chapters 36 of the book of Genesis, and that's going to focus on the lives of the patriarchs. And so we see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then you get to chapters 37 to 50, and that's all about Joseph, which if you were here not too long ago, last year, a couple years ago, we did a sermon series on the life of Joseph. We're obviously in that middle section, the book of Genesis. We're focusing on Abraham. Uh, So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you now to turn with me to Genesis chapter 13 this morning. That's where we're going to be in that middle section, like I said, focusing on the patriarchs, specifically Abraham. So this chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, it begins like this. And if you don't have a Bible, then we're going to have the words up on the screen for you. So in chapter 13, verse 1, here's what it says. 
So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything that he had, and Lot went with him. So at the beginning of this chapter, we meet again these three main characters uh, that we've already met in chapters 11 and 12. We have Abraham, we have his wife Sarah, and we have his nephew Lot. So let's just take some time and step back and summarize a little bit of what we know so far about each one of these characters. Because something to keep in mind, when you're reading the Old Testament, Old Testament narrative specifically, one of the important things to pay attention to is how does the author introduce these characters? So what does this author say about this person? What can we learn about this character from the way that they're described and talked about in the text? So first of all, what do we know about Abraham? Well, obviously we're going to learn a lot more in the chapters to come. But what we know so far from chapter 11 is that Abraham is from a place called the Ur of the Chaldeans. And remember, Bible, the Bible is not mythology, it's history. So Ur is one of the oldest and most important cities in the ancient world, and it's located in what is now southern Iraq. So I'll show a picture of you up on the screen there. You can kind of see it on the map. I tried to make uh, Ur a little bit bigger, but that's where it'd be if you're going to like Google map this place, Ur. Um, and here's a photo of the ruins of Ur that was taken by uh, the Royal Air Force. I'll show you one more. Here's a photo of from the ground. This is the, the city that's still there. In fact, it's one of the most important archaeological sites in all the world. Uh, archaeological digs um, have, here have uncovered a massive trove of artifacts that you can find from every place from the uh, Louvre Museum in Paris to the University of Pennsylvania. And in the time of Abraham, Ur was one of the wealthiest and influential cities in the world. So you can just Google, if you get bored today, just Google the city of Ur, and you can read on and on and on about just how fascinating uh, this place is in history and the cradle of civilization. So Ur is a real place in Mesopotamia. And Ur was dedicated to the worship of the moon god. So what do we know about Abraham? We know that he was from a pagan city. We know that he was from a pagan family. And Abraham was not a worshiper of the one true God. When God called him, God calls Abraham out of this life of idolatry and into a life of worshiping and following the one true God. And so Abraham comes from the background of idolatry. So this is important to know. He comes to us in the text as a worshiper of the moon god who now has been called by the one true God. And isn't that kind of the journey that all of us are on? Each and every one of us, God reaches down to us somehow through his word and he says to us, turn away from whatever gods that you've been worshiping, whatever things that you have made ultimate in your life and come follow me. All of us, each and every one of us are on that journey somewhere. And maybe you're still living in Ur. Uh, Maybe for some of us, right, you're still following after, chasing after, seeking after some other thing besides God. But maybe for you, you're beginning to feel provoked by God as if he might be calling you to follow him. So what do we know about Sarah? Again, we're going to learn much more about her in the chapters to come. 
But so far, one important fact is in Genesis 11.30, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. This sets up one of the key tensions that kind of drives the whole story of Abraham, namely that God has promised to make of Abraham a great nation. And yet he and his wife are childless. So how is that promise going to be fulfilled? How is it going to come into fruition? That question, that tension, again, is what drives this whole story. And that's what makes Lot an interesting character in the narrative. So what do we know about Lot so far? We talked about Abraham. We talked about Sarah. What about Lot? Well, we know from chapter 12 that Lot is Abram's nephew. He's the son of Abram's brother. He's sort of like a son. Now, is Lot going to be the one in whom God is going to fulfill his promise? Will Lot take on, uh, is Lot going to take on Abram's son in there? We're going to find that out today. But notice how Lot's presence has been described thus far in the story. I'll show you a couple different places. Genesis 12, a couple places in Genesis 13. In Genesis 12, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Genesis 13, 1, the Bible says, So Abram went from Egypt to Negev with his wife. Everything he had, notice, Lot went with him. Genesis 13, verse 5, Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds. So you kind of get the sense when you read about Lot that he's just kind of going along for the ride. And Abram is the one that's compelled by the promise of God. Abraham is the one who is leaving and going. Abraham is the one who is building altars and calling on the name of the Lord. Lot is described as going with him. That's how the Bible describes Lot. And this is often how our journey begins a lot of times. Your spiritual journey probably began by going along with someone. Uh, there was someone in your life who had compelling faith in God. Uh, perhaps someone whom God had called them to himself and they had left their old life behind. And for whatever reason, that was compelling and you were swept up into that as well. So sometime when, when you were connected with people, perhaps, who walked with God and you sort of live off their calling, so to say, in some ways. You learn what they learn. You experience what they experience. But it's all kind of secondhand. It's not firsthand. For a lot of people who grew up in Christian families, this is your story. You've been included in your parents' journey, and they had followed Christ, and then you had gone along with them. And that's a really wonderful thing. It really is. Um, that's how spiritual legacies are built. You've likely experienced a lot of blessing in your life as a result of being connected to your parents and being on their journey with them. But here's the reality. Sooner or later, every one of us comes to that crossroads where we have to make our own decisions about God. Our, our faith can't be our parents' faith, right? So you have to make that decision about the journey that you're going to take. Lot, in the same sense, is at a crossroads. Okay, so far, Lot has been experiencing the blessing of God because he's been with Abraham. He's been connected to Abram. But as chapter 13 unfolds, what we're going to see is the danger of only having a secondhand faith. The major contrast in chapter 13 of Genesis is the contrast 
that you'll notice between Abraham and Lot. And you might even describe it this way. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. Abraham we see as first-hand faith. Lot we see second-hand faith. Abraham, we see first-hand faith. Lot, we see second-hand faith. And there's a significant difference between those two, first-hand faith and second-hand faith. So I want to point out to you as we go throughout the story this morning, the features of first-hand faith. And here's how we might describe a vision for discipleship, spiritual formation as a believer. So first-hand knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not embracing this because somebody else is embracing it. You're not just along for the ride, but rather you personally have firsthand experience of the saving grace of God in Christ. So, so what is it, that firsthand kind of knowledge? What are the features of it? Genesis 13 is going to show us. So let's draw these three features that we see in the text. So here's the first one. Firsthand faith worships personally. Firsthand faith worships personally. Notice Genesis 13 verse 2. The Bible says Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place where between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So I want you to notice Both of these men are experiencing prosperity. But notice the different responses that they have to wealth. The text explicitly tells us that Abram goes to the place where he had made an altar previously. And he calls in the name of the Lord. In other words, he worships. And he has a sense that what he has been given, his wealth and his prestige and his honor and his possessions that he has, has been given to him by God and for God. So in the midst of his increasing affluence, he personally and purposefully worships. And the text tells us he goes on to a place where he's built an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. Lot, on the other hand, is not described as someone who builds an altar or someone who calls on the name of the Lord. He's merely described in the text as someone who also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot also had affluence and prosperity. But Lot does not seem to have seen God as the source of those things, whereas Abram's worship is personal. Lot doesn't seem to be a worshiper of God. In fact, it doesn't tell us anything about Lot going with Abram to this place and calling on the name of the Lord with him. Abram is the one calling on the name of the Lord, and Lot is simply there. So first-hand faith, what do we know about first-hand faith? We know that it worships personally. It sees life and it sees possessions. It sees affluence and vocation and relationships as cause for worship and praise and honor to God. This is one of the marks of first-hand faith. The person who sees God as the source of everything that they have, everything that they own and possess. It's an interesting question. How has our relationship with God been affected by prosperity? As our own affluence has grown, is our love for God still hot? As we've received more to be responsible for, has that caused our worship to God to be more earnestly or has our worship kind of cooled off, so to say? 
One of our greatest tests of love for God is the test of affluence. And that's why we study in Revelation, it says to be careful, not just of the world that's out there seeking to tempt you into sin, but also be careful of affluence, of the ways that you're tempted into apathy, tempted into indifference by just having more stuff. So firsthand faith worships personally. So our longing for everyone who attends at Ritman Grace Brother Church is that worship would be personally for you. That praising God and that worshiping God and seeing God as the source of everything that we have would be a personal conviction that we would have, not just a conviction of the people that are around us. Now, notice secondly now, so we see that firsthand faith worships personally, but then secondly, firsthand faith trusts resiliently. Firsthand faith trusts resiliently. Uh, life with God is a battle for our trust. The question is always this. In this moment, in, in these particular circumstances, will I trust God or will I not? That's always the question. The nature of firsthand faith is that it trusts resiliently. In other words, you're not going to trust perfectly, but the question is, will you trust resiliently? Notice what the text says in verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. See, what we see here is Abraham is learning to trust. Remember what happened at the end of chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12 in Genesis, Abraham panicked. And there was a famine in the land, and things were tentative and tenuous. And so he took things into his own hands and he went to Egypt and lied about his wife in, in order to protect his own life. That was a failure to trust. It was a failure to trust God. But here in chapter 13, he makes a very different decision. Though he has a right to choose the best part of the land for himself, because in this culture, the older person would have the honor and the respect and the prestige to choose whichever he wanted. But what we see is that he instead defers to his nephew Lot. Abraham seems to be learning that he can really trust God. God has made promises to him, and there's one thing that he, uh, if there's one thing that he learned in Egypt, it's that God is going to keep those promises. Because even when he failed to trust God, he still showed up. God still showed up, and God delivered him. That's what happens at the end of chapter 12. Firsthand faith trusts resiliently. A life of faith is all about making the next right decision. So here's what's going to happen in our lives. If we're going to walk with God, I promise you that just like Abraham, we're going to probably have some bad moments. It's just going to happen. Why are these characters here in the scripture? The reason that they're here is because they're a lot like you and they're a lot like me. We, just like Abraham, are going to panic and we're going to have Moments where we try to take matters into our own hands. And we're going to fail to trust God. There's going to be moments in our lives where make, we make bad, bad decisions. And the enemy of your soul wants you to live in those failures. Always looking in the rearview mirror. right? Always living in regret, living in remorse, and living in condemnation. Dwelling on the what-ifs and the what-could-be's. What God is wants for us is to repent and to turn back to him. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to make the next right decision, and that's what a life of faith does. First-hand faith 
trusts resiliently. It gets up, it repents of sin, and it makes the next right decision. And that's what Abraham does. As we're going to see, Abraham's bad decisions are far from over. It's not as if from here forward, Abraham is this model of faith. It's not as if that's what's going to happen, but he's learning that he can trust God is what we're seeing. And because of that, in the heat of conflict, the Bible says that he defers to his nephew Lot and gives him the choice of land. Because firsthand faith trusts resiliently. And there's a sense of hope in the promises of God and in the forgiveness of God to get up and trust the next day and make the next right decision. So firsthand faith worships personally. Firsthand faith trusts resiliently. Thirdly, firsthand faith walks in community. Firsthand faith walks in community. Notice what the text says in verse 10. Lot looked around and he saw the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set toward the east. The two men parted company. So notice Lot chose for himself and the two men parted company. The text offers us a number of clues here that Lot has made a foolish and a destructive decision. And we're going we're to look at three of them today. But notice in verse 10, Lot saw the whole plain of the Jordan, and notice it was like the land of Egypt. Did you notice that? Egypt in the Bible is never a good comparison. Egypt is a place of slavery. It's a place of depression. It's a place that God had to deliver Abram from in Genesis chapter 12. So any time that you see somebody say, yeah, it looks a lot like Egypt, you ought to go like, that is not going to go well. But notice secondly in verse 11, Lot sets towards the east. Here's another little clue, especially in the book of Genesis. West is good, east is bad, right? That doesn't apply now if you're from Doylestown. We still love you. But in the book of Genesis, any time someone goes east, they're usually moving away from the presence of God. Anytime somebody goes east, they're moving away from God's presence. They're moving away from the will of God. East, remember, is where the city of Ur is. East is where Babylon is. East is where is the land of idolatry. So anytime someone goes east in the book of Genesis, it's moving away from the presence of God, moving towards idolatry and self. As we as if we couldn't pick up on those clues. We see right here in verse 13, the text just comes right out and tells us, now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And what this is doing is it's a foreshadowing of what is to come in Genesis chapter 19. But it also indicates the Lot's lack of spiritual discernment. He hasn't thought about the people who live in the place that he wants to live. He's chosen surely on the attractiveness of the land and what seems desirable, he's not looking at the character of the inhabitants. And this is going to prove to be a spiritually destructive choice, as we're going to find out. Not just for Lot, but for his entire family and legacy, as we see in the chapters to come. The story of Lot is a reminder of the importance of community. First-hand faith walks in community. Lot does not do that. 
Uh, Lot does that thing that we are all tempted to do. We've all been in that place. You're in a community with other followers of Jesus, and you're about to go in a direction. You're about to make a decision that may be unwise. And somebody comes to you and says, hey, I don't know if you should do that. That doesn't seem like a very good idea. And you respond like, hey, I, I got this. Don't worry. I got this. But then you, we all know how the story goes, right? You walk off into that direction, and then suddenly what happens? You're on your own. And it turns out that you're headed in a direction that's going to be very destructive. And now in God's grace, God allows us to turn back from decisions like that. In this case, as you'll see, Lot does not do that. Lot does not turn back. In fact, he moves deeper and deeper and deeper into this decision. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 12, it says Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. In chapter 14, the Bible tells us that Lot is dwelling in Sodom. And by chapter 19, Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom, meaning that he is one of the leaders of the city. He's worked his way onto the city council. In other words, he's responsible for the place. So as Christians, we have to remember, as followers of Jesus, the importance of primary community. First-hand faith walks in community because it knows the deceitfulness of our hearts. First-hand faith says, yeah, I'm fully aware that I need people in my life around me for when I'm being a knucklehead <laughs> to keep me honest and to keep me accountable and to just be partners on this spiritual journey with me. No one can walk this life alone. We're just not meant to. So that's why we have one another. That's why we're here today. That's why we're part of this thing called the church. As Christians, our primary community is to be the church, the people of God. This is a place that God calls our spiritual family. And these are the people among whom we're supposed to walk in community together. So we're also part of the secondary community, right? Whether it's the city of Rittman or Doylestown or Seville, wherever, uh, the neighborhood, the set of relationships that we live in. But for the follower of Christ, the one who is trusting and walking with God, our primary community is the people of God. And that's what strengthens us. That's what equips us to live on mission in this secondary community of our villages, our cities, our neighborhood, our relationships, and our workplaces. So firsthand faith walks in community. And one of the great mistakes of Lot is that in his foolishness is to think that he knows best and, he, and to separate. And when he separates from Abram, he doesn't merely separate geographically. He is walking away from the promises of God. He's walking away from the person in which God said, through you and through the people connected to you, I'm going to bless the world. And Lot thinks that he's found something better. He says it looks a lot like Egypt. And it ends up being a lot like Egypt. So with this fateful choice, Lot separates from Abram. And we see then that Lot will not be the son. Lot will not take on the role of the heir, the promises that God made to Abram. God's going to have to fulfill these promises in another way. One that is going to require a lot of more miraculous and supernatural intervention. So now, if you put yourselves in Abraham's shoes for a minute, you've left behind your people, you've left behind your country, you've left behind your father's house, trusting only in the promises that God has made. And now the one family member that has come with you, besides your spouse, the one who perhaps you thought could be your heir, has separated from you and gone his own way. 
And now you're alone. You're a stranger in a strange land. Notice what happens next in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. At every point in Abraham's journey, when he feels alone, when he feels uncertain, when he feels confused, God reiterates the promises that he made. God keeps saying to Abraham, and you're going to see this over and over and over again. He keeps saying to him, hey, Abraham, I see you. I'm still here. I haven't forgotten about you. And I will fulfill the promises that I've made. And I will do what I said I, will, what I, said I would do. So notice, you saw it last week, you see it here again in three different places in this passage. Verse 15, I will give to you. Verse 16, I will make. Verse 17, I am giving it to you. God says to Abraham, I will do what I said. So here's our hope as we sit here this morning. Wherever you find yourself, whatever circumstances that you find yourself in, whatever, wherever you find yourself on your journey of trust, God has done what he said that he would do. God has been faithful to these promises. In fact, God's promises to Abraham of the land and the offspring are actually fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest son of Abraham, who even to this day is gathering a people for himself from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and a people on the face of the earth. God says to Abraham, walk through the land. Put your feet on it. Every place you step on, I will give it to you. So to this day, even this morning, every place on earth, there are Christians walking their feet into places of worship and giving praise to the one true God, fulfilling this promise that God made to Abraham. And why is that? It's because God has done what he said he was going to do, and he's going to continue to do that for you. And I don't know about you, but... I know for me personally, uh, when I read these stories of the patriarchs, I'll just be honest, I have a tendency to kind of separate myself from, from this world and the Bible. And I have a tendency to do that. Uh, the, that world seems so long ago. And you pull up photos of the city of Ur, and it just looks like you know, a dustbin with ruins. And it's easy to think to yourself, like, man, that, that was such a long time ago. It, that was a whole different world that the patriarchs we're living in. And I have a tendency to think to myself, my life is really different from that. What does it look like for me to trust God? Abraham had his own journey, but what does it look like for you? What does it look like for me? When I'm tempted to separate Abraham's life from my life and say that that was then, but this was now, the scriptures come in and crash all of that together. The Bible says that our journey is exactly the same as Abraham's journey. Yeah, we live in a different place. We live in a different time, but our struggles are exactly the same. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. See, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church just like us, a church 
that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this gospel that you believe is the same thing that God said to Abraham. When God said, in you shall the nations be blessed, that's the gospel being preached to Abraham. In other words, the core message of Christianity is as old as Abraham. The gospel is God saying, I will. The gospel is God saying to us, I will forgive your sins in Jesus Christ. The gospel is God saying, I will make you one of my people. I will adopt you as one of my sons or daughters through Christ. And the gospel of God is saying, I will put my spirit within you. The gospel of God is saying, I will bring you all the way home to a heavenly Jerusalem, the promised land. Every other religion says you must. Every other religion says you must. You must follow these rules. You must live a good life. You must obey these precepts. You must follow the tenets of this religious system. And if you do, you will be rewarded with heaven, an afterlife, or with a promise. But catch this, only Christianity proclaims the good news of God who says, I will, and who sent his one and only son as a fulfillment of that promise. Notice how Abraham responds to this proclamation in verse 18. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. So what does Abraham do as a response to these promises? This grace from God that says, I will. What he does is he worships. He builds an altar. And he makes himself a little sacred place to worship God, a place of worship and remembrance. And you're going to see that all throughout the story. Abraham building altars, calling on the name of the Lord. And just like we talked about last week, two things are happening with this, worship and mission. Abraham is worshiping God, and he's also being a good missionary in the world that he lives in. Now let me draw your attention to this little feature of the story. Notice it says that Abraham went to live near the trees of Mamre at Hebron. Now, I don't know about you, I've never been to this place. Maybe some of you have. But anytime you define a place by a tree, like that's got to be a pretty big tree, right? Like if you're giving somebody directions and you say, turn left at the oak, that's going to be a pretty big oak. That probably stands out in a certain kind of way, I'm assuming. The oaks of Mamre are a significant geographical feature. This is the kind of thing when you're reading this and you lived in this uh, place, this thing, you're like, oh yeah, the Oaks of Mamre. I know where that's at. So why does Abraham build an altar at this place? Well, as you study the culture and the religion of the ancient Near East, as you pay attention to archaeology, here's what we know about the ancient Near East worship. All of these cultures in Mesopotamia that worship the moon and the sun god and Baal and Asherah, all of these false gods, the places where they gather to worship, those gods were always the high places. Places where the geography drew your attention up to the heavens. Places where there were trees or mountains or hills. Features that were exalted geographically high. That's why you read the Old Testament, especially in the book of Kings and Chronicles. You read repeatedly that God had an issue, had an issue with a king because he did not tear down the high places. And that's referring to a site of pagan worship that the king just left there and said, oh, that's not a big deal. We don't need to tear that down. But it really was a big deal because people were still coming there and worshiping false gods. So what Abraham 
is doing here is, is this. He's reclaiming a place of worship. And he's saying, in this place where the pagans of this country worship Baal and Ashereth and Moloch, one of these Canaanite gods, here in this place, I am building an altar and I'm putting it up as a monument to the one true God. And it's really fascinating because, you know what? A thousand years later from this moment, when David is crowned the king of Israel, guess where he spends the first seven years of his reign? Hebron. Why that place? Why, if you are going to be crowned king of Israel, would you want to bow the knee in Hebron and have the crown placed upon your head there? It's because that's the place Abraham built an altar a thousand years ago, and it's been sacred ever since. So it might be interesting to think about the fact that traditionally in Christian worship, communion is also a place of remembrance. Communion is sacred in a Christian sense. Why is that? It's because it's something that we practice to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified in our place, the one who has reconciled us to God, the one who stands at the heart and the center of Christian worship. And we do that to remember the promises of God, but also to respond in worship. And what is worship? It's a renewing. It's a reconsecration of ourselves to the Lord. It's us saying, God, you've made promises, and we are going to believe them. You've said things, and we're going to take you at your word. You've invited us to worship, and we're giving ourselves fully to you. And your promises are fulfilled in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do all that to remember that by his grace, God has said, I will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the life of Abraham. Thank you for the reminder of firsthand faith. We remember the faith of Abraham. And when we think about that faith, we know that it points us forward to the, the greatest son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you accept us this morning, not based on the quality of our faith or the strength of our faith, but based on the object of our faith. We rest and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to renew our hope this morning, renew our confidence, renew our courage, strengthen our faith. We ask these things for our good, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our church's mission is to follow God, share his truth, and be examples of the love of Jesus to all. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website at www.ritmangrace.org or drop by anytime for one of our in-person Sunday morning worship services. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast.